You are listening to Shell Shocked with the cast of Land of the Lost. I'm Wesley Ewer. I played Will Marshall. I'm Kathy Coleman. I was Holly Marshall. And I'm Phil Paley. I played Chaka. And we are all Shell Shocked. Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. Met the greatest earthquake ever known. High on the rapids, it struck their tiny raft. Plunge them down a thousand feet below to the land of the lost, 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 lost. Thanks for listening to Shell Shock. Welcome to episode 8 of Shellshocked. This week, we're devoting an entire episode to one person, James Randi. In recognition of his decades of tireless work entertaining and educating the public, as well as out of respect for his announced retirement, and also as part of a promotional campaign for his upcoming appearance at Ohlone College, this entire episode will be about the amazing one himself and even includes an interview in which I get to ask him some pressing questions, some of which came from the listeners themselves. So grab your magic wand, your top hat, and your most cooperative rabbit, and brace yourselves for Shell Shock. So, Marilyn, are you busy Friday, October 16th? Mm, no, I don't think so. Why? What's going on? Okay, well, I'm glad you asked, because James the Amazing Randy is coming to Ohlone College, where we teach to speak on skepticism and critical thinking, and that's what this whole episode is going to be about. Woot woot! So, <laughs> we're very excited about this event, and because it's so exciting, and because James Randy is so important to us and to the skeptic movement... Marilyn and I decided we're going to devote an entire episode to the amazing one himself. And after 40 years of devotion to the movement, I think he's earned it, don't you? Yes, I do. Absolutely. So later in the show, we'll include an interview that I recorded just yesterday with James Randi. And he was charming and funny and interesting and enlightening. So don't miss that. But first, let's talk a little bit about James Randi ourselves. And I want to start out by asking you your origin story, Marilyn. When did you first learn about James Randi? Do you remember? I think I learned about the skeptical movement, and it wasn't uh, with James Randi directly. Okay. So um, as some of our listeners may know, I am a behavior analyst, and in uh, we have a conference every year in when this was when back when I lived in Florida we had a state conference every year and we got Shermer to come and give a talk at our conference and when he came he you know promoted his uh, we promoted his books and that's when I really started uh, reading his materials and of course then he started talking about the skeptical movement so I started doing some research on my own 
And that's when I found out about Randy and, you know, all the movement, uh, everything that he was doing. Um, and so that's when I started reading a lot of about Randy and things that he had written. So it's through Michael Shermer and the Skeptic Society that you end up learning about the J-Ref and James Randy. Okay. Correct. Yeah, I had a friend who actually wrote an article for the Skeptical Inquirer. Oh. Uh, um, it was about, uh, remember, reverse speech? Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. so so that's how we got connected to the Skeptical Inquirer. Then that, that's how we got connected to Shermer. And then I met Randy. And then fast forward a couple years, I moved to California and was living in San Francisco and looking into the uh, Bay Area uh, Skeptic Society. And I saw that there was going to be a Skeptics in the Pub with James Randi. Oh, so it, it was specifically the Bay Area Skeptics event that you it, met. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I lived right down the street from where the event was going to be. Wow. And, yeah. And so I was really giddy with excitement that I was actually going to meet the amazing Randy. We practically delivered him to your front door. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, I went that night and uh, heard him, you know, to give a little bit of talk, and then we went to a restaurant, or, or uh, yeah, I guess restaurant in in quotes. There, it was yeah, a small it was a little hot area. Dog place, yeah. <laughs> it was a small little area, and I, you know, my uh, husband was with me, and I got to sit. It just worked out that I got to sit next to Randy, and I could hardly control myself. Yeah, I was just sitting there like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, Randy, oh my gosh. And uh, he, I was just floored by how um, welcoming he was, mm-hmm. and how sweet and kind, and just so, uh, what's the, uh, I'm trying to, just so down to earth. Yeah, and uh, I I loved that about him, and just how composed he was about all of the questions and answers he was being bombarded with, and how gracious he was. Yes, to and give you his know time. That he's heard this, these same questions exactly. a million times, exactly. and yet he still. You know, answers the questions as if it's the first time it's ever been asked, because it is the first time that person's ever asked it. Yeah, and he looks you in the eye and does it, you know, his eye contact doesn't waver. And so it was just very reinforcing, you know, that that whole uh, interaction with him. And uh, then I got uh, um, then I got to go to then I've, I started to go to conferences like the, for the Center for Inquiry. And then I finally went to a TAM. And so ever since that meeting, just because it was such a a good experience, it just made me uh, really want to follow the, the skeptical movement even more. Yeah. So count me as the converted. Randy's a great person to begin your foray into the skeptic movement with. Yes. I think sure. that he not only embodies what we want to be as skeptics as far as critical thinking, rationality, being fair, looking at the evidence, but also I think he embodies what it means to be um, a leader and to mm-hmm. bring other people into the fold rather than always starting out with a you know correction beginning your sentence with actually and that sort of thing but instead just sort of educating people and saying you know welcome and hey here's some information you may not have considered before and doing it in a friendly manner i remember a friend of mine once said you know you wield information like a weapon and it really struck me and changed me when he said that to me because i thought 
That's not how I want to come across at all. And Randy never comes across that way. Unless, of course, it's the enemy. Yes. When it's the psychics, when it's the charlatans, when it's those faith healers and those people, he's got an acid tongue for them, and rightly so. But when it's when it's the people that are, you know, followers of his, he couldn't be sweeter. Yeah, you're right. And he's never belittling, you know, to them. Um, I'm, I'm talking to the followers, you know. he's right. uh, He just uh, doesn't have a derogatory way of talking to them. Yeah. And it's only when, you know, they are obviously using this to milk something out of people that he becomes venomous which is you know uh, uh, a good thing because he really stands up for the little guy right and he is the little guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally uh, you know something struck me uh this uh summer i went to the amazing meeting as you know and uh it was randy's he announced that this would be the last time that he goes to the amazing meeting, which was very sad for everybody who was in attendance. But it also was a wonderful opportunity for people to really speak to him and to each other about what he meant to them. And one of the most moving parts of the dinner that they gave in his honor um, was sort of a farewell dinner. And his good friend, longtime friend Ray Hyman, spoke mm-hmm. at the podium and Ray said very quietly and very sternly people have said numerous times this weekend that Randy was there at the beginning of the skeptic movement Randy helped guide the skeptic movement and he said I want to correct that somewhat Randy invented the skeptic movement mm. and there was a silence in the room for a moment and then everyone burst into applause and he said and I mean that because Randy got a group of us together and he started speaking about the need for us to go out and start a movement and get people on board and educate people about the importance of rationality and critical thinking. And he named that skepticism. Wow. And I thought, and that's coming from one of his peers, someone who has every reason to not say this and to take part of the credit. And he would not take that credit. He said, this was James Randi's movement and that needs to be recognized. What wonderful recognition. Yes, that's yeah. great. I am so sorry I missed that, uh, Tam. I was really bummed that I wasn't able to go. I was very glad to be there. I'm also very glad that they were recording every minute of it on oh, video. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it will be on their website, I'm sure, on the YouTubes, and everyone will be able to watch it. And it's, you know, it's a lot of tears, but a lot of laughter and a lot of fun and a lot of just camaraderie. Well, if anybody out there doesn't know who James Randi is, God forbid, I don't know what you're doing listening to my show if you don't know who James Randi is, but welcome to the fold. You can look him up. Uh, You can also watch a wonderful documentary about him made by our friends Justin Weinstein and Tyler Meesum called An Honest Liar. And it's available right now on Netflix. You can watch it. It'll tell you Randi's life story. See, we should do an infomercial for this documentary. We would... You know, we would be really good. <laughs> We're so into it. Uh, totally. You know, when Randy spoke at Ohlone College back in 2012, here's a little story I haven't told before. I was very nervous because, of course, this is my idol who's going to be on mm-hmm. stage. And it was uh, uh, in the green room. We we're having a little private reception. And Randy was sort of going back and forth between setting up the stage to greeting the guests back there. And all of a sudden, this good-looking red-haired guy with this this curly long red hair comes around the corner with this big smile on his face and a big camera like a movie camera 
and I'm like, what the hell? How did he get back here? Like, I'm oh ready to shoo him away. And I said, can I help you? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing a film about Randy. And I thought, well, then go do it somewhere else, you weirdo. Like, I got <laughs> stuff to do. I mean, I totally took such an acidic attitude toward him at first. I just wanted to know, who are you? What are you doing here? How did you get back here? And it turns out to be Tyler Meesum. <laughs> Oh, Sheldon, that you could have been in the film, but you. <laughs> yeah, if I didn't piss him off. No, I know. actually, we've become very good friends, and he's a I wonderful know. guy. But I hope he forgives me if he even remembers. The the attitude that I had was just like, you are an interloper, and you're not welcome here. And then, you know, he sort of explains to me in the kindest way possible, no, listen, asshole, I'm supposed to be here. I'm doing a film about yeah. this guy. And doesn't um, Randy uh, show up? One of the things in the documentary is Randy at Ohlone College. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene in there that yeah. people can look for. If they know the college, they'll be yeah. able to see the background. Yeah. And, you know, they they did some filming there. They couldn't use everything. They were filming him for, you know, months and months. So right. um, even though he was on stage and they did film part of that, it didn't make it into the film. Maybe in the extras or something in the DVD. Um, but, yeah, we had a wonderful time nonetheless. And then we had a... Um, a dinner for Randy, sort of a fundraising dinner at the home of a wonderful man who's been very supportive of the psychology club at Ohlone. And uh, Randy did magic tricks that evening for all of us at that dinner. And it was just such an, a, a wonder. I keep wanting to say amazing. <laughs> if you say that around Randy, he'll say, no, that's astonishing. I'm amazing. Oh, that's he's so, so cute. cute. <laughs> so Jinx. I'm you can tell I'm getting giddy right now just thinking I know, about the I know. fact that he's going to come again. So, you know, watch the documentary on Honest Liar, everybody. And, you know, before you come to see Randy. And you'll also get a chance to meet his husband, by the way, who will also be at Ohlone College, Davey Pena. Awesome guy He as will well. be there. And he's a wonderful person, too. And I, since he's not a public figure, I won't embarrass him by talking about him on the podcast. I will, however, say go look for his artwork. He works as the artist uh, Jose Alvarez, look up his artwork. It is phenomenal. I went to his showing in Los Angeles just two weeks ago and saw some of his pieces, and they are astounding. Oh, that's really good. Beautiful oh, okay. artwork. I, I, yeah, I look forward to seeing some more of his pieces. I, they showcased some on his documentary, but yeah, on the on the Randy documentary, but right. yeah, that would be nice to see. And you know, even if you've seen Randy talk, if you've seen the documentary, every time I see Randy, I learn something new that yeah. I have never heard before. So he he always knows you know what's out there and he always keeps it fresh this is the kind of guy that you're you're driving him from the airport to the hotel or something and he'll suddenly just say this reminds me of the time i toured with alice cooper <laughs> who else has stories like that you know i was chatting with isaac asimov one night and i said and i'm thinking are you listening what? to yourself yeah this is your life oh my god he knows everyone neil degrasse tyson bill nye the science guy Penn and Teller are, you know, they they idolize him. I mean, he just knows everyone, and he doesn't say it to show off. It's just those are. His it's friends. his life. Yeah, it's his life. Yeah, I had a friend actually just um, give him a ride, his first ride in a Tesla. And if you know Randy, you know he loves his Teslas. Yeah, and he was awed by the power of the Tesla. So he he, he awes and you know in lots of different topics. 
Oh, yeah. He can talk to you about just about any subject. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I love about him is, you know, everything from physics to art to music to psychology. He knows something about it and he knows someone who knows something about it. What an incredible guy. He definitely deserves the moniker Amazing. Yes, he does. So why don't we go and listen to the Amazing Randy? Absolutely. All right. On the line with me now is James Randy. Over the past 70 years or so, Randy has built an international reputation as a magician and escape artist, playing to audiences all over the world, appearing on television countless times, and authoring 11 books on quackery and tricks presented as genuine wonders, and even touring with the rock star Alice Cooper, if you can believe it. He's admired not only by audiences, but by magicians themselves, many of whom consider him the master of illusion and someone they look up to as an idol. After retiring at the age of 60, Randy enjoyed a second fame as the world's most tireless investigator of paranormal claims and pseudoscientific claptrap, much of which he's demystified and revealed to be scams, frauds, and pure charlatanism. And in 1996, Randy founded the James Randy Educational Foundation with the mission of educating the public and the media on the dangers of accepting unproven claims, as well as to support research into paranormal claims under controlled scientific experimental conditions. And maybe most importantly, the JREF offered its famous $1 million paranormal challenge, a prize of a million U.S. dollars it would pay out to anyone who could prove under proper scientific testing criteria, of course, that they had supernatural or paranormal abilities. And after 20 years of applicants, the money remained unclaimed. I consider it an honor and a privilege to say the following words. James Randi, welcome to Shell Shocked. Well, thank you, Sheldon. I'm happy to speak with you again, and I'm looking forward to visiting the college, of course. So for those listeners who haven't had the benefit of hearing your story, maybe we can start out by you just briefly telling us what first got you interested in a career in stage performance and magic. Well, first of all, I was born at a very early age in a log cabin that I helped my father to build, you see. Okay. And we, we were very poor. The neighbors next door had me. It's, it's a long story. But as a magician, I began to... Uh, there were questions from people after my performances when we were chatting about what I'd done on stage. They'd say, well, I saw this fellow do this, that, and the other thing. And they would describe something to me that some preacher had done, for example, uh, which appeared to be supernatural or uh, paranormal, if you will. And uh, that got me very much uh, alerted to the fact that people were being fooled by people out there who weren't being as honest as I am being an honest liar, you see. And uh, that's what got me going on this business of uh, saying that uh, I was going to, after I had finished my magic career effectively, I was going to go strictly into the business of investigating these things and exposing these rascals for what they really are. That's one of the parts of your story, by the way, that impresses me the most, the fact that you became aware pretty early on that the illusions you created on stage could be used to fool the public. But you backed away from that and decided to be honest in your performances. Was that a tough decision for you? No, no. I, from the very beginning, I'd always said whenever I did anything in the way of what they call mentalism, things that seemed to be done with the mind alone, I would always say, don't you believe it. And uh, I hoped that most of them took me seriously. But uh, apparently some of them didn't. And uh, 
they would say to me things like, uh, oh, come on, I know what's real and what's not real. When you told the lady her telephone number and you had never met her before, that's real, right? And I would say no. And uh, they would get uh, very uh, annoyed at it because they thought that I was lying to them. And then they say, well, tell me how you did it. And, of course, we magicians don't give away our secrets or we don't have an act anymore. And in the 70s, you famously saw a guy doing the opposite of that, Yuri Geller, using some probably relatively simple sleight of hand tricks to dupe people into believing he had real magical powers. Why did that bother you so much that you ended up devoting so much time and energy to countering those claims? Well, because I got questions uh, from all over the world about this, and I realized that people, uh, literally colleges and different other organizations, were spending millions of dollars and government agencies were spending millions of dollars to study what they called the Geller effect. And I realized that, hey, this is your tax money, James Randi, going down the drain to study something which is just a simple trick. And then they asked me the secret of how does he do it then? And my answer was very simple, Sheldon, and uh, you'll understand more than most people, I think, when I say he does it when you're not looking. And that's exactly the whole entire secret of the thing. You know, one of my favorite sayings that we often hear in the skeptic community is, you don't have to be a fool to be fooled. What do you have to say to all those people out there who would blame the victim or imply that people taken in by charlatans deserve their fate? No, no, that's not true at all. People in many cases are not well enough informed, not well enough educated, basically even, uh, by their schooling and by their family backgrounds to be able to solve these things. They shouldn't be able to solve the tricks that we magicians do, not at all, because those are designed specifically to deceive people the same way that an actor stepping on stage and dressed in a blonde wig calling himself a prince of Denmark is not really a prince of Denmark. Hamlet, no, not at all. He's actually wearing a wig, friends. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> You know, I mentioned online that I'd be interviewing you, and our, our mutual friend Lynn Kelly asked me to pose the following question. She said, for some lonely people, imaginary friends might provide some company and purpose, whether they're God or Jesus or angels or variations on the theme. How do you deal with debating their beliefs when it could lead, perhaps, to an increase in loneliness or sadness? Well, it could. But the point is that they usually end up giving money to people who will support their belief in these things, and they end up giving their, their their faith away, and they give away their trust to these people, and these people will take them for long rides, very long and expensive rides as well, and they will deceive them in order to make money from them. And a friend of mine who's a psychology professor, Dr. Anthony Pratt-Canis, he wanted to know, what's the weirdest or maybe the most evil flim-flam that you've encountered? Uh, frankly, if I had to, to choose one in my career as a uh, an investigator of uh, unusual claims, let's put it that way, I would say the Peter Popoff exposure. Because Peter Popoff, the preacher who's still busy on TV, can be seen at about 3 o'clock uh, most mornings on obscure channels, still begging for money from the faithful out there. He had a gimmick that was going for him, and I exposed it on the Johnny Carson show, much to Johnny Carson's surprise, too, because he had no idea how Popoff was doing it, in spite of the fact that he, Johnny, was a very accomplished amateur magician, and uh, though he never did any magic on The Tonight Show, uh, he was very devoted to the art. 
And uh, when 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 he heard, they they always recorded this in the afternoon. I should tell you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they had chance to do editing if they had to, or to straighten up some some messes that they might have made during the taping. And uh, Johnny Carson actually, when he realized on the program what the gimmick was that Popoff was using, he said, oh, sh-. and he said he held his hand up to the audience and shushed them so that I could continue on speaking. He was so surprised to see what the gimmick was. What, were you surprised when you saw that Popoff was back? I was shocked by that, but I guess I shouldn't have been. Oh, no. These are unsinkable rubber ducks. And long after his retirement, Johnny Carson used to call me at home and uh, say, you know, I just saw Popoff again. I thought we wiped him out. And I'd always have to tell him, John, these are the unsinkable rubber ducks. You've got to get used to them because people will always believe them because they desperately need to believe in something supernatural, something woo-woo. And the crazier and the most more illogical it is, it seems, the more it attracts them. As you look back on this decades-long career of yours in magic and in the skeptical movement, what do you think that we've been able to accomplish or that you've been able to accomplish, and what do you hope we'll be able to do in the future? Well, Sheldon, I get uh, I get my evidence for, for how effective uh, my battle has been. Usually after showings of the On a Flyer movie or after a public speech or a performance that I've given, and some people cluster around afterwards to talk to me, and then you notice that most of them wander away after having spoken with me, and maybe four or five will stay behind, and you can see tears in their eyes and coming down their faces, and you have to wonder what it is, but I've gotten accustomed to it now. These are the people who take you by the hand, and they say, you made a big change in my life, and this is something that you cannot buy. I've said that for years now, but it's true. You can't buy that kind of dedication. And I realize that what I've done has, has been effective, and it has gotten to these people at least. And I always tell them, take them by the hand and embrace them in most cases. And I simply say, go forth and uh, tell other people the same thing that you told me. And that's that's my purpose. I was lucky enough to be at the West Coast premiere of that documentary, the documentary about your life, An Honest Liar. If there's anyone out there who hasn't seen it, it's available on Netflix now. Uh, You can find it online. It's an amazing film about an amazing guy, obviously. And I witnessed firsthand the effect that that film had on people. It was really quite astonishing. Yes, it is touching. And it makes you think seriously about what you're doing, you know. And it, it lets me know, frankly, that what I've been doing has not been in vain. It's It's been to an end, and at least it got to these people, and I hope that they will spread the word, of course. You recently stepped down from your leadership role in the James Randi Educational Foundation and, and officially announced your retirement. So does that mean we can expect to see social media posts of you out on the golf course or lounging around the pool from now on, or do you have other plans for your retirement? If you saw me with a golf club, you'd know that they had no plans uh, about golf and me. <laughs> Uh, I, I used to caddy for my father as a kid and hated every minute of it, and I still hate it. I have no idea why people are attracted to golf, but I probably lost half my audience now just by saying that. <laughs> so uh, forget what I just said, folks. Oh, I love golf. Oh, it's a wonderful sport. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but <laughs> no. uh, I, I have, well, I had so many things yet to do. I've got uh, my 11th book is on its way out. 
That's uh, the one that's called a magician in the laboratory. And uh, I'm just putting finishing touches on that and having to trim it down considerably or it'll be a foot thick because I've written on this thing for, well, the last 20 years at least, just putting notes together uh, on what, what has happened to me in laboratories all around the world where parapsychologists who are supposed to be scientists and be scientific have gone down the wrong path altogether. They believed things like Murray Geller and allowed their, their colleges, their schools, and their, their friends, as a matter of fact, to spend money on Geller, and that's all wasted money. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I'll be seeing you very soon, since you so graciously accepted our invitation to speak here in the Ohlone College uh, Speaker Series. That'll be Friday, October 16th. you want to talk a little bit about what you'll be saying that evening, what we can look forward to? Yeah, I'm going to talk about my Uncle George, for one thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, he really wasn't my uncle, but I'll explain that all to people. This is somebody that actually took me to the David Dunlap Observatory in Richmond, Ontario, Canada, north of Toronto. And he actually held me up to the eyepiece of a telescope. Now, I was about nine, maybe ten years of age at that time. I saw Saturn, the planet Saturn, that wonderful sight through a telescope, and that's the 74-inch diameter mirror in that telescope. It was an astonishing sight. And um, I was just so overtaken by that and overcome that I, I thought to myself, this is for me. And I determined to go into science. I ended up going bad, so to speak. I was going to be an archaeologist or I was going to be an astronomer. I didn't know which. And then somewhere along the way, I ran into Harry Blackstone, and Harry Blackstone was the reigning monarch of magic in those days, and he took me backstage because he saw I was so curious. He taught me how to do a magic trick. And so archaeology and, uh, and, and they all lost me somehow. They, I don't know whether that was bad for sciences or not. I'm not too sure. But I guess magic is... Um, has benefited from my presence. I, I hear that from fellow magicians, so I tend to believe it. Well, I would argue that you also went into science. You certainly have taught me an awful lot about science, and I very much look forward to seeing you in a few weeks, and thank you so much for being on Shellshocked. It was fun, and uh, I'm looking forward to being at Alonia. I can't wait. Can't wait. Great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. The Science Report. If you Google the name James Randi, you could spend the rest of your life reading all of the articles, blog posts, and other information that appeared on your screen, and the varied nature of those materials could keep you entertained and enlightened for every moment of it. Everything from his career in magic, to the founding of the JREF, to his battles with self-described psychics, has been written about countless times, helping to form the very foundation of the skeptical movement. But one of his most important investigations seems to have fallen by the wayside, and is only rarely discussed, even in skeptic circles. 
That investigation centered on a faith healer named Peter Popoff, and its results were broadcast on live television to millions of viewers heralding his bankruptcy the following year. Perhaps because of a seeming reluctance of subsequent generations to openly criticize religion, or maybe due to the large divide that has developed since then between skeptics and atheists, Randy's outing of Popoff as a fraud on national television is now practically forgotten by all but his most devoted fans. Mention Randy at a skeptic convention, and you'll hear stories about psychics like Sylvia Brown and Yuri Geller, or laments over the proliferation of homeopathy and vaccine denial. Rarely will you hear the name Popoff. That's a shame for two reasons. First, because the takedown of religious charlatans is an important part of the skeptic movement, and it should be approached with the same attitude of rationality and using the same investigative techniques that we use for anything else. And second, because religious organizations are the ultimate scam, raking in billions of tax-free dollars every year from their credulous followers. And it may surprise many of Randy's fans to hear that Popoff is back and more successful than ever. The story of Peter Popoff actually began in West Germany in 1946. When he was still a child, Popoff's family moved to the United States, where he grew up and eventually attended UC Santa Barbara. While there, he met and married his wife Elizabeth, with whom he co-founded their ministry in Upland, California. They were so successful that they eventually landed a TV deal on the Miracle Network, broadcasting across the country as he seemingly performed miraculous healings of serious and even incurable medical conditions. These built him such a following that Popoff would eventually make them the centerpiece of his show, often instructing the faithful to, quote, break free of the devil by throwing their prescription pills up onto the stage. Some of these medications were reportedly for serious and even life-threatening illnesses, making for a dramatic show of faith indeed. Popoff would also command those in wheelchairs to rise and walk, and they did so without assistance, often with tears of joy streaming down their faces, and a lot of money streaming into Popoff's bank account. Later investigations by his critics revealed that many of these seemingly incapacitated people were actually fully able to walk before the so-called healing, but had been placed in wheelchairs by Popoff's assistants before the cameras began to roll. The success of his televangelism set Popoff on the road toward even more income when he took the show on the road, playing to sold-out crowds of thousands in convention halls, large tents, and auditoriums in major cities across the country. Popoff not only performed his healings, but eventually began to profess divine knowledge from God himself, reciting the names, addresses, and ailments of the attendees before they even had a chance to approach him. Stand up, Alice. God is touching that thyroid condition right now. God is touching your nerves right now. God is touching your eyes. Just lift up your hands. Get ready. Here it comes. To hear good news from Charles before everything is over. I'll tell you, he's going to be completely delivered because of your prayers, because of your faith. Here it comes. Complete healing in Jesus. Woo! Mighty name right now, right now, right now. Amen. It's all right to praise the Lord. At the height of his success, he caught the attention of magician James Randi and his Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Randy decided that Popoff's claims needed to be investigated and challenged, in much the same way that he had investigated the assertions of those who professed psychic and other paranormal powers. 
Randy enlisted the help of a group of dedicated skeptics, including the young magician Steve Shaw, who now performs under the name Banachek, and who had earlier posed as a psychic for paranormal researchers at Washington University in the famed Project Alpha hoax. After attending some of these healings, Shaw got close enough to Popoff to notice something odd. He seemed to have no hole in one of his ears. To Shaw, this meant he could possibly have a small radio receiver in his ear through which he had been receiving instructions. After learning this, Randy set to work gathering a group of skeptics to take part in a sting operation. This included sending in stooges like a postal worker named Don Henvick, who attended the healings in a variety of disguises and with all manner of diseases and ailments, always feigning miraculous healing after being blessed by Popoff. Once, Henvick even attended dressed as a woman named Bernice Manikoff and claimed to have uterine cancer. She was cured that night, of course, and Popoff was none the wiser. Throughout these and other healings of Randy's minions, a crime scene analyst and electronics expert named Alexander Jason was backstage, dressed as a security guard, and using a radio scanner to scroll through the airwaves, hoping to luck upon the frequency Popoff was using for his little scheme. After hours of this, the scanner suddenly stopped, and these fateful words were recorded. Hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. It was the voice of Elizabeth Popoff, Peter's wife. As it turns out, she and others had been strolling through the crowd before the show began, greeting the faithful attendees and chatting with them about their ailments, even asking some to fill out prayer cards with their names and addresses. These were then read by Elizabeth into the radio transmitter and straight into Popoff's wireless earpiece. John? Dearly Johnson. She wants to get rid of the walker. You want to get rid of this walker, sister? Oh, glory. How long have you been walking on that walker? About three years. Three years. She lives at 1627 10th Street. 1627 10th Street? Is that right? That's right. She has arthritis all over. Burning this arthritis right out of your body. Take a few steps just to make the devil mad. Hallelujah. That's it. Just move around a little bit. There she goes. For the mid-1980s, this was a sophisticated and ingenious scam that would be difficult for most people to figure out. But James Randi and his team weren't most people. After collecting several hours of audio with Popoff parroting his wife's words nearly verbatim, Randi and his team knew they had enough proof to go public. Within hours, Randi was on live television, thanks to his close friendship with TV talk show host Johnny Carson, playing the recording for millions of viewers on The Tonight Show. Carson was shocked and outraged, as were many others. By the following year, Popoff had filed for bankruptcy, naming nearly 800 unpaid creditors. For many, that's where the Popoff story ends, with Randy coming out victorious and the faker fading into the background. Would that it were so. Unfortunately, that's not how things work out in the real world of Wu. Popoff may have filed for Chapter 13 protection from the IRS, but he was hardly finished scamming people. Just a decade later, Popoff's comeback was announced, 
and he soon began turning profits that made his success in the 80s look downright quaint. Jumpstarting his ministry by repackaging it for an African-American audience, Popoff started broadcasting on BET, the Black Entertainment Television Network. His new shtick included what Popoff referred to as debt cancellation as part of God's plan, preaching the now popular seed faith gospel, claiming that God responds with financial blessings to those who offer up seed money to his ministry. In other words, give Popoff money and God will return that investment to you with interest. God came to the woman just like I'm coming to you. Oh, and I feel God is dealing with some of you. You feel like you're backed into a corner. There's no place to go. The devil has you cornered. Oh, God just spoke to me. Someone, you're on the verge of bankruptcy. Why is that? Because God is Jehovah Jireh. He is the great provider. Here's a testimony that confirms what I was preaching about tonight. She got a million dollars. Divine transfer, amen. She has won a sweepstakes of five million dollars. I want people to know about this water. It's powerful. God's going to give you a miracle house, miracle money, amen. Miracle health and strength that will astonish you, amen. 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 In 2008, regulators in the UK issued strong warnings to broadcasters for promoting Popoff's products. Quote in such a way as to target potential susceptible and vulnerable viewers. These included offers of free miracle mana bread that Popoff claimed could provide health and financial miracles. Also, offers of free crosses containing blessed water and holy sand, both of which he claimed, oddly, were drawn from a spring near Chernobyl in Russia, the site of the 1986 nuclear reactor disaster. Popoff claimed that animals and humans drinking from the spring were reported to have been miraculously spared radiation sickness. In the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and New Zealand, Popoff continues to offer this Russian miracle spring water on late-night infomercials, promising miraculous protection from disease and disability, as well as financial prosperity. These miracles only occur, of course, after sleeping with the water for one night, drinking it, praying over the empty container, and then returning it to Popoff with a financial donation. After this, many letters of solicitation will likely follow, each promising more miracles in exchange for donations. In the 1980s, Popoff was pulling in approximately $4 million a year. By early 2003, his ministry's income had increased to $9.6 million annually, and in 2005, a whopping $23 million was collected, ensuring an annual personal salary of nearly $1 million for himself and his wife. Since that time, Popoff's ministry has morphed from a for-profit to a religious organization, so financial data are no longer available. It's quite telling, though, that according to an ABC News report, he purchased a multi-million dollar home in Bradbury, California, and drives a Porsche and a Mercedes-Benz. So the moral of this story is twofold. First, as Randy is fond of saying, these unsinkable rubber duckies can't really be stopped. They may be slowed down, but they'll either return with another scam later, or they'll be replaced by one of their fellow con artists. And second, the real effort of the skeptic movement should be to educate the public about cons and scams so that they'll be better able to defend themselves against the charlatans. 
Only by strengthening the victims can we hope to gain any ground in fighting the fakers. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is the Good News. This week's story is from a Facebook post by Kirill Alfarov from the Skeptic Society Russia, shared by a fellow skeptic, Susan Gerbic. Alfarov submitted the story to TAM 13, held in 2015. However, it was declined since the format of his presentation looked more like a workshop, and all workshops had already been scheduled. He presented this on his Facebook feed to be shared among skeptical friends, since this is one more win for skeptics all around the world. I thought it would be perfect to share with our listeners. He writes, Just like actors study the intricate workings of Shakespearean plays, so do skeptics discuss the immense popularity behind people such as Yuri Geller. Is their success solely explained by the desire of people to believe? Is it the chemistry of time? Showmanship? The media? In the case of Soviet phenomenon, Nina Kulagina, the answer to this eternal question of success is less of a mystery. When asked why this woman is not only believed but revered, the enthusiastic YouTube crowd will tell you in no uncertain terms that their faith is based upon years of scientific investigation. To them, this is perhaps the only real telekinesis. Indeed, scientists involved in those experiments are no strangers to the trade. The veneer of respectability and authority that glows from their Wikipedia pages is mesmerizing. These people cannot be fooled. They are the kind of people who invent time machines. And yet, in this case, we are sure more than ever that Kulagina's success is attributable to the persistent support that these high-ranking professors have provided her with for over 20 years. The story, as seen in international print, usually lacks the details that would interest an investigator. Born in 1926 in Leningrad, Kulagina has had a varied biography of first serving in a tank regiment during World War II, being wounded in action, and after the war leading a less-than-honest lifestyle, even receiving a term in jail for financial fraud. But her stellar career would begin in the late 60s, when she entered the world of academic science, ultimately providing a study of human gullibility, which would span over 20 years. Her feats were numerous, but around the world, she is of course mostly known as the possessor of real telekinesis. The most visual of psychic effects had to make it to the top of the charts. Hundreds of videos on YouTube publish again and again those several minutes of alleged supernatural powers, usually narrated by a deep, rich voice and decorated with a haunting piece of electronic horror music. Skeptics have long regarded the Kulagina phenomenon as explained. James Randi duplicated her magic with little effort into the satisfaction of many. But Alfarov has never been satisfied enough. Randi certainly degraded her demonstrations to a mere question of how, but a student of magic himself, he wondered if Kulagna could know techniques perfected by generations of professional magicians. The modern handling of invisible thread, logical, simple, and efficient, is a result of both theoretical and practical evolution. Hundreds, if not thousands, of authors and practicing magicians created a knowledge base that had been, that had been hardly accessible to someone like Kulagina. 
Known magicians in USSR provided little help. Either their versions were too outlandish or simply fell outside of the known facts. One notable magician went as far as to say that she put magnets into every match in the matchbox and then used a larger magnet to move them. To Alfarov, Kulagina phenomenon really translate to Kulagina method. It had to be simple, practical. It had to occur to a non-magician. She had to be able to perform in front of dozens of people who were scientists and be seldom caught. And those listeners who in their lifetime vanished a thing or two might at this point chuckle. Magicians instantly know what kind of secret that is. A painfully dumb one. Contrary to popular belief, the toughest nuts to crack are not truly clever ideas, but those powered by methods straightforward and void of imagination. The kind of solutions where you experience this particular form of disenchantment coupled with annoyance and disbelief. Nobody in their right mind should use such horribly dull means to perform what just a minute ago you thought of as the most magical thing ever. Kreskin never peaks. David Copperfield does not use rope to fly. So how exactly did she do it? Up until a while ago, Alfarov was ready to die not knowing. But thanks to the professional stage magician by the name of Otav Ranid, contacted Skeptic Society Russia after their local week of telekinesis event, this change. Reading a letter from this man, Alfarov knew that he was looking at a hypothesis that for the first time answered every little question, explained every little detail, and then finished off by providing actual video evidence that went unnoticed for well over 20 years, simply because people did not know where to look. Alfarov now believes that we possess a hypothesis that is probably as close to the truth as is humanly possible in this case. The idea is ridiculously simple and something that no magician will ever go for. Practical, yet little theatrical value. You take a thin nylon thread, tie it to your heel, and then pass it along your leg under your dress and then pull it right outside at the level of your stomach. You make sure that the thread extends far enough over the table, tie a knot at its end, and perhaps dip it in some glue. That will make the knot harder and prevent it from untying. Seated behind the table, you straighten your leg, and the knot finds itself on your dress, inconspicuous and innocent among the fabric pellet population. But if you bend your leg at the knee, then the thread can now be pulled out and the knot dropped on the table. An object can then be put on top of the knot, you straighten your leg again, and the object moves toward you. One important thing to notice at this point is the type of objects Kulagina was able to move. Both on videos and in witness accounts, all of them have one thing in common. They are light. But there's also another important characteristic that is usually missed, is that they are all hollow. Imagine a grain of rice. Try hiding it under a lighter. Tough? And now let's remember the objects we see on videos. Pen cap, the cover of a matchbook put on the rear side. Light aluminum cylinder. Empty cigarette case. Lipstick cap. Each of these objects is able to cover the grain of rice very well. Kulagina is given a choice of objects and she selects them by the principle outlined above. She then bends her leg at the knee and the tension of the thread weakens. Now she's able to throw the knot on the table. But Kalagina does not rush. She waves her hands over the objects, demonstrating superhuman effort. Objects do not move. 
She drops her hands in despair, then rests for a while. She takes the objects in her hand as if getting used to them, rearranges them on the table, and tries again. An hour passes. Everyone is tired. Kulagina looks beaten by her experience. But this is exactly the moment to strike. Having dropped her hands once more, this time she grabs the knot between her fingers and throws it on the table while reaching for the objects. She rearranges them on the table as usual. Her audience suspects nothing, their vigilance lulled by her repeated and fruitless efforts. I'll try once more, she says. And then it happens. One of the objects begins to move slowly. Everyone is startled. Afraid to move, everyone watches magic happen right in front of their eyes. The object reaches the edge of the table, and a knot, hidden most of the time under the object it's moving, is now free to stick back to the dress as Kalagina straightens her leg. The trick is done, and the simple apparatus is now reset. She can perform once more. At first, this method might sound weird, disenchanting, unclever. And it is, but what makes a hypothesis valid is its explanatory power. Alfarov explains how well the hypothesis does. First of all, several reports from people claimed to have caught her in the act mention knots on her dress and her throwing thin threads with knots on the table. One of the high-ranking professors to this day claims he saw thin threads with knots. Not all scientists have been fooled. These messages got lost in the noise of crazy versions, whereas magicians naturally found this method unpractical. Second, nylon threads existed in USSR, and it's easy to imagine how Kulagina could have discovered this method by accident, say, fixing her dress one day. No need to know the methods of professional performance or worry about loops and magicians' wax. Third, the procedure described, most notably the habit of Kulagina to constantly rearrange the objects, now makes sense. It turns out it was part of her act. Fourth, in no video and in no written account do we ever see objects moving away from her. Her telekinesis seems to work only towards her. This is a strong point that was noticed by many skeptics. And finally, this hypothesis seems to be confirmed by video evidence. On one piece of video, you can actually see a knot on the table, which after a while jumps back to Kulagina. Of course, we might never know for sure. There could have been variations. Her legendary cautiousness that made her audiences wait literally for hours to see an effect is a big part of her secret. We know that she did other tricks and seemed to constantly come up with new demonstrations. But the likelihood that the method described for telekinesis is basically correct, this likelihood, in Alfarov's opinion, is very high. After posting this debunking, the Skeptic Society Russia website got visits from many believers, including those who had been actually present at those experiments, but their position was hardly shaken. Perhaps it's this persistence in light of contradicting evidence that we shall now call the Kulagina phenomenon. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. After the trick-or-treating, but before the wild costume party, why not take part in the official Houdini seance? Harry Houdini died on Halloween 1926. This year, on Halloween, a group of magicians, skeptics, and scientists are holding two seances to try to reach the great escape artist. 
One seance is sincere, the other is pure magic. The entire spectacle is part of the Bay Area Science Festival and takes place in San Francisco's 360-seat Brava Theater. Participants include skeptic Michael Shermer, magician Jamie Ian Swiss, and neuroscientist Melina Unkefer. Science, magic, skepticism, and fun will abound. To learn more, go to houdini-seance.com. If you can't attend in person, you can surely live stream it, wedging it between your trick-or-treating and that wild party. Visit houdini-seance.com. Well, everybody, that's the show. Thanks for listening, and be sure and check out the show notes for links about Randy's upcoming talk at Ohlone College, as well as the official Houdini Seance, both in October. And if you haven't liked our Facebook page, please do that so you can keep up to date with everything that's happening there. We've got some incredible interviews coming up next month, and each of you will be given a chance to participate in several of them. Once again, thanks for listening, and until next time, you've been shell-shocked.